As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games, about board games we played, about introducing these games to people, about how we can make this hobby fun and interesting and show people new games. Yeah, deal with it. Deal with it in your face. In this podcast, I'm here with my great friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? I am. I've been better. Yeah, so have I. All right. We'll get to that later. Here's some good news, though. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, and I don't want to assume that everyone is... Every day from now on will be a little bit brighter and a little bit longer than the day before it. This is true. This is this is what solstice means. <laughs> this is as dark as it gets. Christmas is coming. Well, there's that too. All right. So we're going to talk about the games we played this week, and then the news, and why it doesn't matter, and then our feature game of the week, which is Imperial. Do you pronounce it Imperial? Well, that's the thing. It's it's E-M-P-Y-R-E-A-L, Imperial, not Imperial. It's Imperial Spells in Steam. Yeah, remember I told you they should have called it Imperial Rail. See, that would have been cool. It had, you know, tied in the train theme and everything. It would have been great. I've been told that train gamers are very serious people. They do not appreciate puns. They only appreciate numbers and the occasional X thrown in for good measure. All right, Mark, we got to play Aristea. This is a sort of futuristic sports game, sort of akin to Blood Bowl where you have a much smaller team and no actual ball. You're just pushing people around and blasting with guns and trying to control areas. And we tried a, a new variant, a new sort of expansion that came out for it, which uh, expanded it beyond two players. And uh, it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, Let me push back on, on, on that a little bit. So the expansion is called Primetime. I've been looking forward to it for some time because we're both fans of Aristea. We reviewed it a few months ago. It is really solid as a two-player game. And whenever you're trying to transition past two players into multiplayer, you end up with some potential problems. Problems that the designers of Primetime did not seek to address at all. And I'm going to be doing a very, very broad brush uh, generalization here, but but I've often found that some war game designers and some miniatures games designers are firmly set in the two-player mindset, and then when they make multiplayer games, they're just not cognizant of some of the design challenges there. So one, just as one particular example of prime time, you might wonder, oh, well, who gets credit for the kills? Do you have some sort of notion of who does more damage, or is there a tricky timing thing, or do you care? It's like, no, 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 no care at all. Just whoever does the last hit, that's fine. So they really lean into some of those issues. So as a version of Aristea, I think primetime is a colossal disappointment. I still had fun in our session, but despite the format, not because of it. Yeah, true. I suppose if it's one of these things, if you're introducing people to the game, I think it would be fine. Because it it cuts down on the number of characters you're controlling. It sort of uh, makes it more of a group thing, and it, it makes it a little lighter. It, you know, flows a little bit. I shouldn't say flows a little bit better, because it did take a lot more time, but it's sort of... You know, sort of, it's everyone's sort of in the same boat, whereas when it's one-on-one, it's like, I'm crushing you, 
you're taking, you know, all the brunts of the, you know, you know what I'm saying? Hmm. You're seeing more gained up upon. That's a fascinating perspective. I I hear what you're saying. It's a way to focus someone's attention because, as you say, they only have two characters rather than four in the normal version of Aristea. And that is a good way to give people an on-ramp. The the problem that I would have in terms of endorsing primetime as a way to introduce somebody to the game is this is not Aristea at its best. And as a result, you might turn people off. Now, we played with Dewey. Dewey was the third player. And he he kind of enjoyed it, and he'd be interested in trying it two-player. So there's that data point, at least. But whenever playing a game like this, I always want to see it lead with its best foot forward. And I don't think primetime is the way to do that. And actually, the smaller roster, although more friendly to new players, is really one of the ways in which I think primetime suffers. Because when you're playing the full version of Aristea, you get to have four different characters, and there's lots of different leeway for what kind of teams you want, whether you're drafting, whether you're doing a free build, whether you're doing any of those sorts of things. And there's room for, say, a support character, and there's room to have interesting combos go off. When there's only two characters, eh, it felt a lot more simplistic, not just in terms of fewer characters to manage, but also in terms of the gameplay choices. Agreed. So this is a game published by Corvus Belli and designed by Alberto Abal. Jesus Fuster and David Rossello. So I still thoroughly recommend Aristea. Primetime for me was simultaneously a reasonably enjoyable experience, but a colossal disappointment as far as the format's concerned. On that topic, I got to play Vengeance Director's Cut. This is the expansion to Vengeance by Gordon Kalea at Mighty Boards. Mighty Boards is the fascinating Maltese slash Polish publisher. Vengeance is a personal favorite of mine insofar as it, it's just reckless abandon and the way it captures high body count and it had the precise instantiation of a very, very particular theme. Nothing does revenge movie quite like Vengeance does. And this used to be a relatively niche genre in terms of sort of grindhouse cinema or more genre film, uh, ever since uh, a small picture by the name of John Wick kind of blew up the genre and definitely made it more mainstream. John Wick, by the way, was what we used to call a cinema experience. Cinemas were these ancient sepulchral areas where people used to go in the before times. Ooh, sounds exciting. Sounds dangerous. Vengeance is a strange beast in that, in terms of uh, sheer gameplay, I never really felt like it lived up to its thematic promise, but I never really cared. It was one of those situations where, during the experience, it's very, very compelling. And so you don't mind that there's not a whole lot of player interaction and it takes a little bit longer than it wants to be. I've got a lot to say about Vengeance, and almost all of it great. It's a thoroughly enjoyable experience. And so anyway, the Director's Cut expansion, which was kickstarted last year, was at least in part designed to inject a little bit more player interaction into the game in the form of these these Director's Cards, whereby you're wronged and horribly mangled and uh, brutally, brutally uh, assaulted protagonist jumps into a den full of bad guys and thugs, And the director, who is either going to be the player to your left or your right, is going to play a card to alter the composition of the den slightly or have them attack you or have the thugs be a little bit more reactive. Now, I'll start with the good. The good is, is it makes the resolution of these encounters a little less deterministic and a little bit more unpredictable. Because strangely enough, even though it's a dice game and a marvelous dice game at that, to actually go and murder all these thugs in this den, you can manipulate the timing in such a way that even with a, mi- a, a small amount of luck, you can ensure that they're never going to aggress you too badly. But with the director's cards, you can't, for example, rush in headlong into a, dead if you've, a den if you've only got one hit point remaining. Because someone might play a card and say, well, I'll, I'll do one point of damage to you. And then you're knocked out, and then your run is spoiled. So you have to be a little bit more careful about things like that. However, I had a major concern that was borne out. And my concern was, Vengeance feels like a cooperative game when you're playing it. For a variety of reasons, not just the trappings of the genre, where the notion of having a revenge movie where three different people are all competing as to who can get more revenge over different gangs at the same time doesn't really hold up. But anyway, when your friend jumps into a den and you know what they've done to you and they've driven a nail through your hand and they did all these terrible things to you, you want to see them win. It's not satisfying to watch your buddy, even though if, they're, if you're competing against them, to have a failed run against a den. And so playing a card that is going to apt to lead to that felt bad. It didn't. It, it 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 really heightened the cognitive dissonance. Because again, when I'm playing Vengeance, I don't have the cognitive dissonance. I get to revel in my friend's success. And yeah, there's a score, but I don't really care too much about the score. But when I'm suddenly put in this position of, okay, here are these cards. Make your competitor's life more difficult. It really highlights that sort of dissonance, and I I did not enjoy that part, even though I appreciated the increased degree of unpredictability to it. Now, that having been said, 
the Director's Cut expansion is still one that I can absolutely recommend because of the other stuff that it includes. It is a new gang. New gangs are great. The figures are marvelous in, in Vengeance. They have marvelous personality. The art is so well executed and so really well framed. And I'm a huge fan of all the vi- visual elements of Vengeance. And the Director's Cut expansion continues in that vein as a new character. And perhaps most importantly of all, it increases the thematic integration of the different characters in the game because this is another weird issue of Vengeance. The solo mode is perhaps the most thematically gripping version because every character has character-specific missions and character-specific conditions in order to satisfy the narrative of their solo experience. And in the multiplayer game, that had not been translated. Well, with some of the elements of the Director's Cut expansion, with character-specific missions and character-specific skills, you have that reintroduced back. And so, for example, my favorite character, Kaja, who is a former Peshmerga, a 60-year-old herbalist, who gangs very foolishly decided to mess with and kidnap her teenage grandson. Now she is in the process of rescuing her teenage grandson again, which is what she was doing in her solo version. And now she gets to do that in the multiplayer version as well. It's a slight nod, but it really is, I think, an improvement. So although I don't really appreciate the mechanical elements of the Director's Cut expansion in terms of highlighting some of the the strange frictional elements of Vengeance, I still am a really big fan of the entire package because of how it seeks to really infuse more of that flavor into the game. Because at the end of the day, for me, Vengeance, although a satisfying dice puzzle, I mentioned it in the context of discussing my combat mechanisms last week, for me, it's primarily about the experience and about the theme and about the visuals. And the Director's Cut expansion improves on all of those. So that's our early experience of the Vengeance Director's Cut expansion. This was a review copy sent to us by Mighty Boards. I'm very much looking forward to trying all the new elements of all the existing characters, trying some of the new characters a little bit more, and all the other good stuff, although I do not know how many more times I will be trying the director's cut cards themselves. I'll definitely try try it at least once or twice more. I'm not sure if it's going to stay in the regular rotation, but all told, Vengeance has been a somewhat of a perennial favorite in terms of just capturing a thematic thrill ride in a way that very, very, very few other games ever have. And so Vengeance has highest possible recommendation on that score, despite its mechanical shortcomings, and the Director's Cut expansion exploits some of those, but at the same time does a great job of exploiting some of Vengeance's strengths as well. You and I got to play a game called For What Remains. Is it the Basement Edition? It came from the basement, from Uh, down below? Out of the basement. Out of the basement. More specifically, out of the basement. Because the two factions that come in that box, we paired them up against each other, and I just love this game more and more. I really want models because we talked about how the new Aliens game to represent hordes, they just put discs under the models. I think that would work just perfectly fine for this game. Just have a few discs underneath to show whether they're, you know, elite or veteran. Except, like I told you, they're doing it wrong, Mark. They have to, they have to market it differently, right? You have to have, you have to have the army separate and then the book separate and you charge them for everything. And then two weeks later, you come out with another edition. This way they can get more money moving towards this franchise. See, this is how it's done. It's one of the reasons why I love boxed skirmish games. Because even though in order to get the full For What Remains experience, you need three different box sets with two factions each. If you compare it to the distribution model of most other skirmish experiences, you're still getting a bargain. And I agree with you that there could have been minis. I don't mind the absence of minis, honestly, when it comes to... The ability to store all six factions, the fact that they're all in chits makes it great. I have them all in one Plano Plano, uh, knockoff dollar store organizational tackle box thing. I do agree, though, that the tokens don't really serve their best advantage because there's no information on the tokens other than just a designation of what quality the troop is. But what quality the troop is is entirely reducible to the number of tokens anyway, so it's literally no information at all. Yeah, I'm not not trying to take away from the game the fact that there's no models i just want them to introduce them i don't want to say the game you know falls because there aren't aren't any i just will say it would be a cool introduction later down the road to start putting some tables uh some models on the table as well sure I, i'm entirely sympathetic to the desire to bling things out i do like a lot of the models the dragoon looks awesome uh the pyro looks really cool like a lot of the art is really really good in for what remains i just wanted to once again ding the fact that in for what remains there's a lot of wasted real estate uh you know on the back of the unit cards there's just no information whatsoever when they could have written a an ability reference on the back of the AI cards. They could have written a unit reference or they could have in, involved the stats there again. Like There's just a whole lot of wasted real estate that, that makes the game less usable than it needs to be. I feel like I, I say this all the time when talking about DVG games. They're really great. 
It's just usually there's one or two little things missing in their player aids that make it a little less usable than it ought to be. Uh, and there are really, really good player aids available online. Fabulous ones. They're very pretty and very efficient. But again, I wish, you know, I wish they were in the box. Yeah, For What Remains is great. It's got a lovely chip pull activation system that really makes you consider when, what you want to activate and when. The different units are flavorful and interesting to use with their own abilities, just like you want the sort of sci-fi skirmish-type game to, to, to be. It is... Uh, in, in a very crowded genre of skirmishy type things, and I play a lot of skirmishy type things because I have endless enthusiasm for them, For What Remains is definitely, I think, top tier. Yeah, it's got that system where we talked about in the combat where you're rolling successes and it only causes one wound, and then you take a chip from the bottom and they get a little less, or they get wounded, and then if you hit them again, blah, 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 blah. And then they get a little less powerful, they drop from being elite to a veteran and then to a recruit, depending on you know what you bought in the first place. And I just think that makes it nice and simple. Flow's great. I love For What Remains. Designed by Paul Lowe, David Thompson, and Ricardo Manuel Lewis Thomas. And like you said, it's put out by DVG Games. On the topic of David Thompson, we also got to play another game that he co-designed, this time with Trevor Benjamin. This is this being Undaunted North Africa, the sequel to the in very excellent Undaunted Normandy. This introduced vehicles and a slightly different scale, and instead of the dog-tired Americans versus Germans in Normandy, not that we've got anything against that, it's just been done to death, this is a long-range desert group in North Africa against the Italians, so I'd very much like how novel the setting is, and they definitely exploit that in terms of the artwork and in terms of the personality that's injected in the different soldiers that are represented. I am a sucker for a Sikh in a turban and a uniform. I just, I, it, it makes me weak in the knees. It's one of the reasons why I play Infinity the way that I do. Anyway, we got to play another scenario. This is a review copy sent to us by Osprey. It has the Thompsonian combat system you just talked about. You roll XD10. If any number exceed the the value, you inflict a hit. And honestly, the, the simplicity and genius of the initiative system for Undaunted is what makes it for me. You draw a four-card hand. You want to play all four of them. You have to burn one of them for initiative. And you need initiative because if you lose initiative and get hit, some of your units won't activate in all likelihood. It's so tense, so agonizing. I adore it. Yeah, the whole mechanics of this base game is on lock. Like I told you, I'm just waiting for more stuff to come out. It's just, it's just adding more stuff will make it great because everything is so tight already with the base game. I can't say anymore. Yeah, I'm actually going to have more to say later on in the year about having to compare Undaunted North Africa and For What Remains, because in many ways, they're sort of mirror versions of each other. They both feel very skirmishy, and the Undaunted system has always felt kind of a, a skirmish adjacent to me, and whereas the, the core systems of For What Remains don't display this kind of mechanical genius that Undaunted does, I like what they've done with the system a little bit more. You get a little bit more unit variety, which, I mean, is understandable, right? You're not going to have the same kind of unit variety in a World War II game that you would have in a science fiction game where people have mutant powers and crazy radioactive dinosaurs. Like, it's just, that's the way of things. But by the same token, the fundamentals of the deck building and how that interfaces with your fundamental actions, even though the fundamental actions are less interesting in Undaunted, the core around it is so engaging, whereas in Fallout Remains, it's kind of the inverse of that. So they're both stellar, stellar designs that I would play any time. And again, it just shows the kind of depth and breadth and range that David Thompson and his, his co-designers as well. But I've been playing a lot of David Thompson this year, and I'm a huge, huge fan of what he has to do. And I am... Always willing to play Undaunted, and I really agree with you. I think the system itself needs to be exploited as much as humanly possible. I want to see more theaters in Undaunted. I want to see Undaunted applied to other settings as well. I want to see what it can do. I want to see it taken for a, a serious ride, and and perhaps even a little bit unmoored from the rigid scenario system that that Undaunted has. I don't know if this is possible. Like that's one. That's again one of the things that I appreciate in For What Remains. And For What Remains, you know, you pick your faction, you get points, you can buy your units, go to town. You can play a simple skirmish thing where you're just trying to get kills and pick up valuables, or you can play a more specific uh, uh, scenario as presented in some of the scenario books. Whereas Undaunted, you know, it's a little bit more tightly scripted. This is a historical scenario. These are the units you start with. These are the specific objectives. You know, and that's fine. But again, I I think. If it's possible to hybridize these two things, you, you might have something that would be really, truly astounding. But I'm happy to play either one of them any day of the week as it is. Agreed. Got to play It's a Wonderful World. This is the drafting game that was released last year. 
which in one way is an unrelentingly bland cube, uh, cube builder in the terms of its theme. It tries to dress it up with like alien saucers and like weird fountain of youth type stuff and bizarre science fiction things. But at the end of the day, it's mostly about cubes. But I really like the tension of when you're drafting a card, figuring, am I going to try to build this thing or am I going to burn it for a resource? And even then, the timing is great. I really love the production system of It's a Wonderful World because all the resources get produced in specific order. And so if you're really clever, which I never am, you can chain things so that the production of the first resource finishes the card that then juices your production for the second resource or later on down the line. And on top of this, you get great player interaction because if you produce more than anybody else you get a bonus that can be worth at least one point, possibly far more than one point based on how your tableau is coming up. So it's a very simple game, but it's got lots of tricky decisions with respect to timing and what cards to take and why and how to manage your throughput and trying to make sure that you can maximally use your output of resources because if you have too many cards that are out trying to be built, that's a bit of a waste because you should have used them to, to get earlier production out. But by the same token, if you're too conservative, which I almost always am, your production can't go anywhere. You don't have enough things to build. And suddenly you've built all your cards out and you feel like you're the smartest person on earth, but then you produce all these cubes that have nowhere to go and then you've wasted them. So all of these little production challenges in a marvelously quick and incredibly simple package, that's one of the reasons why I go back to It's a Wonderful World and I'm I'm a big fan of it. Even though the strict quality of drafting isn't quite as good as Fairy Tale, which is probably the best pure drafting game I've ever played. You still get a little bit of that great hate drafting, though, because you do get to look at the person next to you and figure out, eh, they're really heavy into yellow. They'd make really good use of this card. I better take it from them. And I could just burn it for a resource. It's okay. So it's definitely better than, say, other games like Blood Rage, which I also like, but I don't really like the drafting too, too much in Blood Rage. I haven't played the expansion. It started to trickle out in some years. I was going to say, I was going to ask if the, because the Kickstarter, I'm not sure if it's fulfilling you or not. Apparently, neither of us, you know, backed it because. Because, you know, that was... Well, because I'm a stupid man. I didn't back it because I'm stupid. I should have, but I didn't. But once the expansion is out, I will absolutely try uh, try it. And maybe it'll be available someday. Like, part of the reason why I wasn't beating myself up too much about missing the expansion was because the Kickstarter exclusive version of It's a Wonderful World was made available at a very reasonable price on the website of the publisher, La Boite de Jeu. And I think, oh, they'll do the same with the expansion anyway. There's no chance of a global pandemic shutting down web stores and making international shipments very difficult. That is entirely impossible, which is exactly what I said. You remember my saying that, I to do, you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Word for word. Yeah, I put it on, on, a, on a poster. Anyway, so that's It's a Wonderful World by Frédéric Gérard and La Boîte de Jeu. And I am looking forward to the expansion if I ever get my hands on it. Mark, we're going to be playing some more online games soon. And I'm looking forward to introducing you to this game. It is Caravan, it's called. But uh, for what it does, for what it is, it's fantastic. It's just this square grid, and you have five camels that you get to place on this grid, and there's a bunch of random cubes. I'm trying my best to explain this. Camels like and a, cubes. Camels it's and like cubes. It's like I'm there. Like you're, you're on the board. You see the camels. You can feel their breath on your face. <laughs> I don't all think right. I want to play this game anymore. So all you're doing is you have four actions, and you move your camels around, and all you're trying to do is link these cubes to their colored base type thing. So you're it's like pick up and deliver, but then other people are stealing those cubes, or, or it costs two actions to move where another camel is, someone else's camel is, or your own camel. And once you steal a cube, then no one can steal it again because it's not this back and forth thing but you have these steal tokens so as soon as you steal from someone then you can't steal anymore until someone steals from you so it's this very interesting of trying to create these chains and use your five camels because they're not that's you need more than that usually to get it all the way to where it's supposed to go so you sort of have to like you know manipulate your way around i think for the time it takes and for what it is this is a fantastic game it's designed by joel huber and put out by Real Grand Games. I think it was uh, like 2019, but now it's on Board Game Arena, and I have a huge fun playing it all week. I look forward to trying it. It sounds vaguely familiar in some ways, at least, to another game we played online, which is Fast Sloths, which we streamed last week. I don't know why you suggested Fast Sloths, but I'm glad you did. So it's designed by Friedman Freeze, and Friedman Freeze is a very interesting designer because, from my perspective, although he designs tons and tons of games, and they're all vaguely Euros... I don't know that I could really identify a Friedman Freeze feel, uh, although aside from the presence of lots of Fs. So it was very appropriate that I, I 
it was alliterative when I introduced the, the, the notion. He's probably best known for power grade, which doesn't really do anything for me, but he's also known for designing lighter, sillier stuff. And so he really runs the gamut from power grade, which is probably for many people, the sort of paradigmatic playing a spreadsheet competitively kind of game all the way to more lighthearted stuff, including fast slobs. And it was very whimsical. I really liked the tone that was set in the rulebook, although I don't think he had to call me lazy about 12 times over the course of an eight page rulebook. I started to feel aggrieved. I mean, it's true. It's demonstrably true, but he didn't need to keep calling me lazy over and over and over again. And you have these animals, one of which may be a human, one of which may be a unicorn, whose job it is to pick up your sloth and dump you somewhere. and it's, or, or hurl you somewhere. Or hurl you. You're, you're entirely right. You can be hurled places somewhere. Including crocodiles. I don't think crocodiles would transport sloths. I'm just, I'm just going to go out there. I mean, they probably do a better job of transporting a sloth than, say, a unicorn, because a unicorn wouldn't transport a sloth at all. No. What with, I mean, I hate to break it to you, but unicorns don't exist. <gasps> Liar. Anyway, what did, what did you think of Fast Sloths? I, I loved it for a light, quick game. I really liked it. It had some interesting, you know, mechanisms, sort of like tying combos together, figuring out like a game space, knowing where your opponents are and trying to, because you want to stay away from them because otherwise we're going to move your transportation either out of the way or bring in another transportation to get in your way. It didn't really pan out that much in our, in our game, except for that whole turn I almost lost at the bottom. But other than that, I think it was a, a purely very enjoyable game. And the fact that you can switch in animals, you use six animals and there's 12 in the game. So you'll have all sorts of different things you can do during the game. And there's four possible board configurations straight up the game. This is one of the reasons why I, when looking for a copy, I wasn't surprised that it's it's a recently expensive game for a, for a game of its weight. But it's hard to begrudge it because there's, there's a lot of stuff in there. It's a no-luck game of of hand management. The cards just cycle through. You never shuffle them. And there's really the interesting possibility of setting up future terms and setting up combos. I would disagree with your characterization, though, about it being most profitable to avoid people. I kind of clued in about halfway through the game that it would be far, far better if I could put myself in a position that I could capitalize on other players' moves because it builds itself as a pick-up-and-deliver game. And literally, that is true because it is literally about picking up a sloth and delivering the sloth somewhere. But most of the time, a, a listener during the during the stream inquired, how, how would you compare it to other pick-up-deliver games? Most of the time in a pick-up-and-deliver game, what you do is you set up your infrastructure, and then you try to milk some kind of economic engine, and you adapt as needed as resources get exhausted. Here, it was mostly about setting up these conveyor belts that you usually only used about once. And I, just, and I realized if, if I can put myself in a position where I can show up after my opponent has used, say, the ants to ferry them across somewhere, and the ants are already lined up in a vaguely efficient way, well then, I can just take advantage of something they've already done. Imagine if in a pick-up-and-deliver game, you built track, sure, but then you could also just show up and use somebody else's track, and suddenly this is all your ability. Now, in some pick-up-and-deliver games, you can do that. Uh, but this is purely about a notion of going from point A to point B. It's more of a race game than it is a pick-up-and-deliver game. Agreed. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was very charming. I would happily play again. I thought it lasted just just the right amount of time, and the card cycling was very interesting, and the car- deciding what to draw and how to use your cards was great, and the variety of animals was neat. I was a little bit concerned that it was going to be tricky to remember how the different animals worked and who could go where and what terrain types, but it's all printed right on the card. Elephants can go on hills, but ants can't, and things like that. Or maybe I'm getting it backwards. It was it was very. Fun. I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. This is the second time in a week, uh, in in as many weeks, where somebody had suggested to play something on Tabletop Simulator. The previous one being Australia, and thinking, really, okay, fine. And it turned out to be a charming experience. So I was very very happy to be proven wrong. And that was fast sloth. Fast sloth will be a lot more of that coming up. And lastly, for me, uh, I played a cacao by Phil. Walker Harding. I believe he did Baron Park as well. And it's published by Abbas... Abacus Spiel. Abacus Spiel. Abacus Spiel. Abacus Spiel. And this is a great game to introduce people into more modern type games. It's it's pretty well... You have your little tableau of, of tiles. You place one on the board and then you take one from the the sort of the draft and they do their multipliers, they do their thing and you quickly understand that you need to get cacao and then sell it at a good price and maybe bid on some tiles, but it's nice, straightforward, you know, hand management game. I loved it. All I know from Teotihuacan is that you got to have the cacao. It's all about the cacao, man. 
It's how the gaming world runs. <laughs> I got to play a game called Aliens, Another Glorious Day in the Core. It exists. We're actually looking over our notes from our 2019 yes. year in review. And Aliens, Another Glorious Day in the Core made the list of games that you want to be good, but no, won't be good. And I will say that it wasn't bad. It was okay. It was, it was fine. It was the good kind of fine. Not the it's fine, but it was, it was fine. In a world where there are tons of co-op running around shooty things, I don't think Aliens and Other Glorious Day in the Corridor uh, distinguishes itself. They do have a solid sense of what makes the movie appealing. They have a good eye for quotes. Aliens, I think, is an eminently quotable game. I don't think there's a whole lot to recommend Aliens and Other Glorious Day in the Corridor if you don't like the movie. So, let me, well, let me see if I can get through the rest of this without quoting the movie too much. It gets some notions right. I think, so there, a number of complaints levied against it online, I think, are misplaced. One of the things that people complain about is there's no representation of the acid blood specifically. So you can shoot down an alien in an adjacent space, you're not going to get hit by the acid blood. It's like, look, you don't need to carefully model each and every aspect of the xenomorph or something that happens in the movie for it to be representative. And quite frankly, I don't know that in this particular game, a separate role for acid blood or something necessarily would have been a good idea. And the pacing of, of movement is also pretty good in that the aliens move a solid six paces every time, which is not as fast as the Marines when the Marines are running full tilt. But the moment the Marines do anything other than run full tilt, the aliens will catch up to them and completely eviscerate them. Except, and this is one area where I have a bit of a problem, everyone's on Overwatch all the time. And so anytime an alien gets next to somebody, everyone within four spaces gets a reaction shot for free. That part... I think helped contribute to make the game a little bit easier than it needed to be. Now, it's hard to say with too much definitiveness because I only played the first scenario and you never know with the first scenario. Sometimes games figure like, ah, it's the first scenario. We'll make it ridiculously too easy, which was one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I appreciate claustrophobia. I mean, don't mess Amazing. around. Three right in the deep end. Absolutely. But I will say that at least the bones are there for the game to be more satisfying is a harder experience. Because what happens is, every mission you bring six Marines of your choice. And the only correct way to play the game is probably to have the Ultimate Badasses expansion, because that's how you get Apone. I'm not going to go so far as to accuse them as being mercenary. Like, if they put Hicks or Ripley in the expansion box, that would obviously be mercenary. But Apone, come on. Apone needs to be in the base box. I'm sorry. It's true. Anyway, moving on. I said I wasn't going to get distracted by elements of the movie. There is this notion of... Some characters are represented by hero stats and some are grunts. So there's a rotating cast of grunts. If you're controlling a character who dies, then you then take over a grunt. And that grunt is promoted to hero status. Now they can have a hand and do other things. That part's great. And I hoped that was going to lead to a high death game. Because in order for the game to feel even remotely like Aliens, there needs to be a certain amount of churn. We talked about this in the context of the Bug Hunt game, which was too easy and the Aliens were too uh, were, were way too slow. I like how fast the aliens feel here, I, although I don't like how they show up at definitive spawn points. That's a little, you know, there are only four spawn points per mission, and so there's just very particular places where they tend to show up. I wasn't a huge fan of that, but I wanted more people to die. I'll be frank. I wanted more people to die. I wanted it to be harder, and I wanted more people to die. So I'm going to play it again. I'll try the second scenario, see if the, the, the body count increases. There are only six scenarios in the base game box. They're, they seem replayable enough, but specifically, I want I want people to die, Walker. I I'll, want. I'll, I'll introduce you to this game I know called Space Hulk. Precisely, that's the thing. It's it doesn't feel as much like Aliens as Space Hulk feels like Aliens. And honestly, I wish that Space Hulk, you know, shorn of its ridiculous Space Marine game workshop elements. But in terms of the pacing, in terms of the sense of mortality, in the sense of asymmetry, yes, Space Hulk gets it a lot better. So hey, we can just take we'll take the the the. Aliens miniatures, and we'll put them on the Space Hulk map, and we'll be great. That works. I, I A couple final notes about the Aliens and Other Glorious Day in the Core game, though. Most people who are plugged into the board game world knew that Gale Force 9 had decided to make the Aliens multi-part models that you had to assemble. Nowhere on the packaging of the actual game does it say some assembly required. That's not okay. That's really, really not cool. I don't know who messed that up, but that's that's not very forgivable, I don't think, and they should have known better. Another thing to note is that although Space Hulk remains the definitive Aliens kind of sort of game, in second place, I think, is the 1989 leading-edge hobby Aliens game that you and I both have very fond memories of. Yes. Which managed to capture an awful lot of the feeling. Well, well, because it sort of like brought you through the different scenes of the movie. Yes. So... 
Well, uh, well, that was both a strength and a weakness because there were there was one good scenario, one kind of wonky scenario, and a whole bunch of other scenarios that were kind of jokes, perhaps even intentionally. I'll never forget the scenario. There's one scenario in the Leading Edge Hobbies version of the game, which is literally about that time that an alien gets into the dropship and murders the pilot and the co-pilot. The entire scenario consists of making two rolls and then you die. That is what happened. Now, I mean, theoretically, if you roll really, really well, you might notice the alien and then shoot it with your pistol, in which case you win the scenario. But it's just roll this D10 and see what happens. I have to assume it was a joke. If so, I find it very funny. Uh, but it also just captured the the sense of, of of speed and pacing. And it also really captured the fact that aliens could spring up anywhere because, you know, they're all over the place. As opposed to Another Glorious Day in the Core, which again is one of my, uh, my problems. They just show up in the same areas over and over again. So you can just set up fire lanes and sit there and wait. Anyhow. A lot to recommend it, but at the end of the day, not enough to differentiate it from a very, very crowded field of very excellent games. If you want something that feels like Aliens, play Space Hulk. If you want to play a co-op miniatures thing with a high body count, I mean, there's any number of things. Project Elite, Hellboy, Cthulhu Death May Die. I mean, take your pick. There have been a lot that have been released recently that I think are, are more evocative of what they're trying to evoke and more solid. If you just want the trappings of the Aliens movie, then yeah, it's fine. And that was Aliens Another Glorious Day in the Core. And those were the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, you got to get on Board Game Geek. You got to look at uh, the news because there's this game coming out called Transmissions. And the art that they put up for this game looks fantastic. I'm hoping that the game will be a little deeper than what they've hinted at. It looks like it's just a, a standard worker placement. But... I'm very much looking forward to seeing the final product of Transmissions. This is game designed by Adam West, and the artist is Matt Dixon. I like Adam West. Adam West has some interesting stuff. I will take a look. There is good news in the world, Walker. There is. Hansa Teutonica is back. It is back. It's back in the stores. It's big. It's back. It's better. Well, and the great thing is, it's affordable. The MSRP is eminently reasonable. It's got all the expansions in, and the box is not huge. It's the big box, but all that they mean is it just has all the expansions in it, that namely the two maps and a couple of other little goodies. And I'm just really glad that a whole bunch of people who've been hearing about Hansa Teutonica for years from us and from other people as well, not that anyone listens to us, will be able to try it for the first time. It's great. It's It, it was supposed to have been coming out any day now for a very long time, and it's finally here. If you like Euros, if you like the classic feeling Euros, even when it was released, Hansa Teutonica felt like a throwback. Back to the days of the late 90s where, where incredibly confrontational, but not mean Euros abounded. Your El Grandes, your Tigers and Euphrates, even some auction games that were very confrontational like Raw. Hansa Teutonica is a marvelous throwback to an earlier age where, yes, it was all about little wooden cubes, but it wasn't about spreadsheet optimization. It was about getting in people's faces and directly competing for points. We highly recommend Hansa Teutonica. Go check it out. We both love GMT games, especially their cover art, and they are having a new game coming out called Samurai Battles. It's going to be a Command and Colors game. How many does GMT is? Do they have a full line of the Command and Colors? Are they the ones they, that put them out, or well, they don't have all of them. But but if it has Commands and Colors in the title, then GMT then is them. is your publisher. Yeah. So this is Samurai Battles. It looks fantastic. They've already put it. It's already been out before. This is sort of just a re-implementation, new art, a little rules tweaks, and I'm looking forward to giving it a try because the pictures look amazing. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the Sengoku Jidai as a, as a period to do games, but I am always down for commands and colors. It's such a solid system, and I, I played the Samurai Bottles in the original uh, version when Zvievda did a, a, a minis-laden one. And it was it was great. I mean, I've never played a bad Commands and Colors game. I've, all the ones that I've tried have been really, really good. So, Samurai Battles. So, a few years ago, a, a French company called Sans Détour ran a Kickstarter to resurrect the skirmish miniatures game Confrontation, published by Rackham. I was a huge fan of Rackham back in the day. I liked their plastic stuff even. I liked their metal stuff even more. And I was very keen at the possibility that Confrontation was going to be, as they said, resurrected. And they were offering this massive omnibus box with over a dozen factions using the original sculpts, all the minis available for a lot of money, but a very, very low price. And I knew it was too good to be true. So I pledged for one euro just to see what was going to happen. Just watch the train wreck. And then happen. the lies started coming in. I just to just give you one indication. I could 
talked for a long time about all the crazy stuff that's happened with with confrontation in Saint Detour. But the thing that where where everyone what, it was made very clear that these people were either scam artists or incompetents or both was when they made it clear that they were actually going to be making these miniatures in plastic. And people said, hold on a minute. You said you were going to be using the original molds. The original molds were for metal minis. You can't just take molds for metal minis and use them to cast plastic. So when you said you were ready to go because you had the molds, you were what? Lying or ignorant? They're like, no, 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 don't worry. We'll, we'll be able to recast the molds, no problem. It's like, great, you have fun with that. And people started pointing out that the amount of money that they had raised, although considerable, was nowhere near enough to cast a whole bunch of molds for that many different sculpts of plastic minis. Anyway, <laughs> I got an email not too long ago from the French police <laughs> because they are now investigating Saint-Détour for the shenanigans that went down for the confrontation Kickstarter, as well as for another round of crowdfunding they did for a role-playing project, unrelatedly. So stuff's going down, Walker. <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting stuff. Now, I did not reply to the French police. I'm only in this for a euro. I, I, I'm just an observer on the wall. And I certainly hope, I mean, I can't imagine that anyone is going to get their money back. That does not seem very likely. But uh, I, I hope that something's going to come of this. That Well, maybe it'll just deter other people from trying to pull this type of thing. That would be nice. That would be nice. One can hope. Finally, in terms of game news, there is going to be a deluxe version of Castles of Mad King Ludwig. So, Suburbia by Bezier Games, got a very, very outlandishly overproduced version funded by Kickstarter. And I very much liked a lot of their choices with respect to rendering it a, a premium product, but I just didn't really like Suburbia all that much. I have more enthusiasm for Castles of Mad King Ludwig, so I'm, you know, kind of interested to see where that's going to go. Some of the preview art shows that it's going to be using the artwork of the Polish edition, which was very attractive, and at the time, Bezier Games swore up and down they would never use for any domestic version. Oh, well. So, news to follow on that. Finally, there's some podcast news we have to talk to you about. Today, it was announced that Ontario is going to go back into lockdown as of Boxing Day. So, this is going to be the last in-person episode we're going to be recording for some time. It's going to be a long and dark January. <laughs> Once again, remote recording and no more games. Well, no more games in person anyway. No more games in person. We've been trying to keep you up to date on what we've been doing to follow best health ad health advice and guidance. And the guidance from the gov uh, government is that all work is to be done remotely, if at all humanly possible. So that includes recording. Now, in terms of more specifically what's going to happen to the podcast, we are going to not be re uh, releasing an episode for next week, the 28th. We're going to be back in January of 2021 with our best of 2020 episode where we talk about our top tens and all the other favorite categories. And you can look forward to that. Now, as far as the patrons are concerned, don't worry. We have tons and tons of content lined up for you. And there will be tons of new stuff for you all throughout January. And I apologize in advance for the diminished audio capabilities of my closet home recording studio. And what this also means, though, is that there'll be... Lots of streaming, because now we have to result to online games, and there's no reason why we won't probably stream them all. So head on over to our Twitch channel, and uh, which you can find on the Guild, and subscribe, and it'll let you know when we're going to be doing said streamed games. Why do you always tell people to subscribe? Every time you tell people to subscribe to something, my soul dies a little. I'm saying it just so that they'll be notified. Okay. It gives us no advantage whatsoever. Oh, really? Yeah, not that, for Twitch, I don't think so. Oh, okay, cool. So more to follow in the new year. And that is the news and why it's terrible. <laughs> now on to our feature game of the week, which is Imperial Spells and Steam. This was a Kickstarter, Mark, back in May of 2018. Yes, it was fulfilled this year. Imperial Spells and Steam was designed by Trey Chambers and published by Level 99 Games. Trey Chambers is the person responsible for another Level 99 Games, specifically Argent the Consortium, which I have finally come to terms with and can now love unconditionally, so long as it's played with the proper expansion of the short version. And Imperial was a departure from Level 99 Games in that it was... Not really about the same cast of characters, but at the same time, it is still the same cast of characters, because now they all have discovered a love of trains. Anyway. Yeah, yeah the story's great. Uh, I think it goes something like something, something, trains, something, something. 
Yeah, I think that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, more or less. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of what one does in Imperial Spells and Steam? All right, so what you're doing, Mark, is you're building up your fine train cars, because this is, you could arguably say this is sort of like a Rondell-type game. You're cycling through these train cars, and you get to improve them and make them however you want, and you're also hiring staff. And you're really mastering timing. More on that later. You're delivering these goods. You're achieving goals. And you're trying to get the most points to win. Now, you will know that this is a game from Level 99 Games. Because if you play some of their fighting games and you ever thought, Hey, I really wish I could do trains at the same time. Because this is what this really feels like. If you want a game where your opponents will pull out unique and crazy abilities that you have no chance to stop or counter and <laughs> you don't get access to those abilities just like a fighting game would this is what this game has huh. in spades well we can get to that later i just want to do a, a quick little public service announcement this is just this, this is just to help people because there are a lot of people on board game geek and even on the guild who absolutely adore imperial spells and steam i can see why they like it i like imperial spells and steam i don't love it Oh, I love it. I like it a lot, too. And I just want to make sure that I give people some possible ways to explain away why I'm not absolutely head over heels in love with Imperial, right? It takes a lot of effort to make up your excuses as to why I'm wrong, so I thought I would just do them the service. You're playing it wrong, Mark. Well, that's one opportunity, one option. One is uh, I, I don't understand the rules. Uh, use any one of these that you like or in combination. I don't understand the rules. I'm a bad loser. I have an irrational hatred of trains. I don't enjoy board games at all. That's a perennial one. You can use that for any game at all. Uh, or you can just invoke my patriotic resentment at how difficult it was to get this game in Canada in the first place. So any combination of those can be used for an explanation as to why I don't adore the game and merely like it. I will, I will keep those in mind. Let's get into why it is such a good game. It has a huge decision space, and you really have to master this timing thing, like I said before. It's like, how far are you going to move your pawn? When are you going to push to deliver goods? Because there might be other trains on these goods, and you have to get them away from your opponents before they take them from you. You have to know how much to upgrade your cards, like how much time to invest in your cards to make your actions more powerful. And you have to decide when you're going to refresh your crystals and your staff, sort of like this sort of reset when you're going to take a pause, buy more stuff or reset your crystals. It's this whole very interesting timing system that I really love in this game. I agree with you entirely that it feels like a Rondell game. It feels like a build your own Rondell game. You get to trick out this Rondell. And in fact, it's somewhat strangely coincidental that it sounds exactly like Imperial, the Matt Gertz Rundle game, in that I feel that the overall arc of the game feels somewhat similar, in that there's this tipping point where you've done more or less what you need to do to set up your board position, and then what you need to do is just find the most efficient way to painfully cycle through your rondelle as quickly as possible to trigger scoring as often as you possibly can. Because you look at the board and you figure, well, I could place more trains, but really I just want to get as many deliveries as I can and just hammer home the end of the game because I want to press my advantage. And exactly like you do at Imperial. And that doesn't happen in every game of Imperial Spells and Steam. But the fact that it feels so similar to the game that sounds exactly the same I thought was worth noting. I also like the fact that not only is that there's that overall choice or timing, there's that even when it's your turn, you have to decide whether or not you're going to activate your cars, how many you're going to activate, how far along your rondelle you're going to move, or are you going to take this the administrative action where you're going to reset your crystals and staff and buy some more cars and stuff. I, I, it's all about a huge decision space. Efficient turns, effective turns, fun turns will cost you lots of the currency that you can ill afford to spend. Because if you go overboard with too many of these combo-laden special effects turns where you advance many spaces on your own personal rondelle and then activate a whole bunch of cool cars under that column, well then, you're going to have to follow that up with an administrative turn where you literally do nothing other than just get your resources back. And so those tempo trade-offs, again, very much like a, your good rondelle games, like a Matt Gertz game, well, do I take the easy action that's within, that's within reach or do I spend the resources that I can ill afford to spend to go and do the cooler thing that is great and it provides lots of of pre-move tension and it really forces you to make both tactical trade-offs in terms of what i need to do now and also broader strategic trade-offs in terms of well what am i going to do to set up my next turn and the turn after that and the turn after that all while worrying about what your opponents are doing 
So the only thing that doesn't make this sort of a rondelle game is the fact that there's an end and then you have to reset to the beginning. But so at the end of the line, you get to do this deliver action, which means you have all these trains out marked in these different colored territories. And then you get to pick a color that as long as you're adjacent to one of the cities of that color, you pick up all the goods and then you get to score some points. And I felt as though it sort of has that Imperial 2030 little bit of a problem where they have these really interesting scoring markers, but they have two numbers on them and people will get them confused just like 2030. Well, is that the victory points or is that the number that I need or are these the shares that I get? But anyway, it's not that confusing. Imperial 2030 is much more confusing than this is, but the fact that some people were having issues with it, I thought I'd mention. I would not have expected a second comparison between Imperial and Imperial, but there you go. I'd put that in there. And then, uh, so, and then there's even more choice after that. Yeah. So you have three choices. You can reset your crystals and get more crystals, or you can get, uh, some more staff and untap the ones you have, or you can upgrade some more cars. And I like the fact that you have all these different options at the end. So every time you go through your rondelle, you can sort of focus on what you need to do. Very much like other Trade Chambers designs, or very much like other Level 99 games, you're constantly being bombarded with toys. And that's great. It's always nice to be able to get progressively more abilities and more cool things to do. It helps being able to position for the early, mid, late game with different pressures. It does, however, lead to one of my substantial criticisms of the game, and that is, for most of the time, the pacing of Imperial is great. The flow, as you would say, is real. The flow is real. Everyone is taking very quick turns. Even when you're not administrating, when you're administrating, it's lightning quick. But it's just, I advance a couple spaces, I put up these two train cars, there you go, that was my turn, go. And then, there's when you get new toys. Now, your first couple games, it's worse than your later games, but even in your later games, there's this screeching halt that the game comes to when everyone starts scrambling for either the rulebook or the player aids that are not included in the game. That, hopefully, your host has printed out, but even then, you then have to look through this list of five special powers from which you get to choose, or however many, and read what all of them do and pick one. And oh, guess what? It's your turn again the moment you finish doing that, unless somebody else needed to f- look at the reference for their own group of special powers, because honestly, it just it just kills the game. It just grinds to a screeching halt, and I hate that aspect of it. And I found the special powers are fairly uh, powerful. And the fact that it's whoever gets to that stack first gets to choose the first one, I felt a little overpowering to me. I kind of liked it. It it helped influence the tempo considerations, right? Because as you said, when you get to the end of the line, you can either get more currency, which is great because it also helps you with tempo because you don't have to waste a turn administrating, or you can get special toys that are train cars. And by the way, just parenthetically to continue what I said before, your first couple of games, you're not going to be able to parse the iconography on the train cars. But after a while, that did become second nature, and we didn't have to check the reference for that. But your first couple of games where you need to check the reference every time a new train car hits the display, and on top of every time you get a new special character, ugh, it's, it's, it's such... It is really painful in comparison with how quick and smooth and pleasant and accessible everything else in the game is. It's really an unfortunate dichotomy. It's just changing gears that that, that hurts so badly. But I, I agree with you that it's really good, but I think that that's actually neat because you're taking an oppor- a serious opportunity cost to go get those powers first. Yeah, and, and there's three different ones. There's one that you can tap and use every turn or before you reset it every time. There's one that is an ability that just is out there the whole time. A passive, yeah. Passive ability. And then you have the the station master, which is the one that is like sort of a one shot. So there's captains and engineers, surveyors and station masters. So see three different kinds of staff and they all have their special little things that they can do. I'm impressed that you can remember which one's which. I don't remember which one is called which. Every time I look at the player right again, it's a new discovery. It's like, oh yeah, these are the station masters. Sure. Or right, I have some stuff at the top Remember, here. I have an irrational hatred of trains, and that's why I don't absolutely love Imperial Spells and Steam. That's right. So there's some points. One point at the top here that i got to scroll past, I don't want to forget. The setup is a pain. So you have this huge gridded map, and every single space needs a token. Uh, you know, if you get everyone to, you know, pitch in, it's not too bad. But Honestly, it is, I, it is a little bit of a pain. I agree with you that the setup is onerous. The setup and Teardown are both onerous, but it's not so much that. It's the fact that what you've got... More on this later. This giant box stuffed to the gills with so many different high quality, very attractive components. And they all come in these little, they're not game trays, but they're the equivalent. They're well designed and they store everything very nicely. 
But it's one of those games that's a nightmare to take out of the box because there's eight different trays for the factions. And then there's three different trays for this and two more trays for this other thing. And you're spending all this time pulling out and then you run out of space on the table for all the things that you pulled out. And then when it's time to find the components in the middle of the game, you're like, wait, where did that thing go again? Oh, it's on the chair next to me. All right, here it is. And but as I say, everything is very lovely. It just gets very cumbersome. I wish some of the tiles were cards. I wish some of the other fancy components were tokens. I think that would have improved the quality of life a little bit. I wish some of the trays had been larger, so you just have to remove one tray and perhaps leave it out on the table. That thing, I think, would have led to an increase in quality of life. But at the end of the day, everything is beautiful, with the exception of the boards. I think the boards are a little unappealing looking, which is a shame, because that's what you spend most of the time looking at. But everything else is lovely. It's hard to complain too much about the, the components other than how much they cost. More on that later. True. And the cities are very interesting. The, uh, the, the city tokens that you have everywhere else, they fit. They look like cities. And not only that, you can slide all these tokens into it. And like I said, the trains are, you know, interesting and on their own. We got to play with some very cool little trains by Stephen Aslett and the little plastic train company. He was nice enough to send us uh, a bunch of tins of trains. He's going to have a Kickstarter for those this coming year. So that was nice of them. Absolutely beautiful. They're these recreations of vintage train cars. The one that he's made already is called the Mercury. And they're the perfect size for Ticket to Ride or Imperial. And they're two-tone, and they've got great little details. They're marvelous. Now, the trains that come in Imperial are very, very nice. But honestly, the ones that Mr. Haslow sent us are, are just a step above and are really, really cool. All right. Replayability of this game is pretty huge because not only are everyone has a different uh faction that's a play and they have a faction ability they have their own player board which the setup is slightly different at the beginning of the game you have slightly different cars then the maps can change uh the goals that are going to change every turn which is unfortunate because i wish we could be the edge master all the time edge lord edge lord sorry edge lord that's even better um <laughs> And then you can, of course, you know, you can choose different upgrades as you're playing and different staff because there's, you know, dozens and dozens of different staff members that are going to be in each game because they're only having a a subsection that you deal out at the beginning of the game. So that's going to change all the time. It's definitely going to be a different experience every time you play. And it doesn't really feel like a pick-up-and-deliver game. Again, it's got a lot of the same trappings. You know, a lot of train games are fundamentally pick-up-and-deliver games married to an economic engine. This is a simpler one, so there's no economic engine, really. There's just kind of a Euro-efficiency rundle thing uh, put on top of it. Your trains are relatively static, and so the goods are relative one-offs. You sort of metastasize your train network gradually, and your first challenge in the early game is connecting to cities, because you cannot deliver goods of a color unless you're connected to the cities. But there's no blocking. In point of fact... Other people having trains out on the board makes it easier for you to get to different parts of the board. Yeah, that was a point that I didn't like. It's, oh, yeah? I'm, I'm just, I'm going to compare it to Roll for the Galaxy. Roll for the Galaxy has this mechanism where you need to, uh, where you, where you guess what? You're rolling dice. And, okay. And, and if you don't roll what you need, then that's too bad because that's the game, except that you eventually get all these powers where you can just turn the dice to whatever you need. So that whole interesting mechanism is just out of the game which is what this is here. It's sort of a pick-up-deliver. The whole sort of game is making these cool, you know, tracks that join the cities, and now they introduce these transfer skippings. You can just put your trains... By the end of the game, you can almost put your trains wherever you want because, you know, you can skip for free. Oh, I'm just going to put my train four spaces away because it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, I preferred the early earlier bits of the game where the challenge was getting to the cities. Once you've connected to the cities you need to connect to, at that point, you're putting down train cars mostly to grab the goods. And so it, in fact, feels just like a one-off. It's like, okay, I place this train here. A couple turns later, I'm going to consume that good for one point. So you're not connecting a route so much as you're just placing down these sort of staccatic, atomistic things that are then just going to hoover up the resources. And then there was the luck of the refresh, I think is my last point that I have here, is that once you have this huge display of train cars, and once it gets down to two, then it gets completely refreshed, and sometimes, you know, some fairly powerful cars might pop up, and you're the last player to go, and everything gets sucked up before you even get a chance. They're usually all pretty well balanced, but I just thought that was an odd mechanism to throw into the mix. Do you not like how the new train car that shows up might be something you really needed? Or do you not like how one of the train cars that disappears might have been one of the ones you wanted? No, I don't like how the person that is after me just refreshed it. And now six people or now three other people are going to go before it's my turn. And none of the good cars that just came up will be there. Fair enough. 
So I just want to flag one element of the game that I appreciate conceptually, but I'm not really able to feel, and that's the spatial puzzle element. And I've commented a number of times before on the podcast that I don't really like spatial puzzles. And I think there's actually kind of a good one in Imperial Spells and Steam. Because, and this this is one of the ways in which the different factions are kind of asymmetrical, because most factions find it very easy to place train cars on the terrain type that matches their player color. And there are a number of other types of terrain where, at the start at least, they are very much not suited to placing train cars there. And they do so with great difficulty and with and very seldom. And so as a result, during those early parts, especially when you're trying to chart out routes, the part that feels like route charting, again, the part that I like the most, you can then look and say, okay, I need the most efficient way is I need to place on a blue, and then I need to place on a red, and then I need to place on a yellow. Okay. I need to therefore plan my next three turns or next four turns or just start to imagine how I might do that chaining element and looking ahead and trying to figure out how to maximize that to most efficiently get to where I need to go. I am not able to do this, but I'm able to recognize that this that Imperial rewards that kind of forward thinking in combination with a spatial puzzle. I'm usually only able to see one turn ahead, and that's one of the reasons why I'm not very good at games that that have a spatial puzzle element like this. It's like, oh, okay, this has to be placed on a red. That red looks good. All right. <laughs> done. And so I do appreciate the fact that there's this additional horizon. But again, I feel that, that I don't feel that horizon in nearly the same way after roughly the mid game where I'm connected to the cities where I want to be connected. And at this point, I'm just jockeying for those individual resources on a, on a, on a one to one basis. Yeah. I really love the building of the cars where you can, you see on your board, it's like, it starts off, oh, I can only do build deserts at the end. And then you can sort of balance it out by getting some cars that do it at the beginning. And the fact that you can choose which of the cars you're going to activate and all of that part is amazing. And it's just an all-round feel of the pickup deliver, and I think it plays it in a very reasonable amount of time. I agree, which is one of the reasons why I think the setup and teardown problems are a little bit exacerbated. Again, I wouldn't dislike the tedium of looking up the special abilities so much if it weren't for how smooth the rest of the game was. I wouldn't object to the setup and teardown so much if it weren't so much if it weren't for the case that the game plays so quickly by itself. The final thing I'd just like to note is that I, I have to start questioning the value proposition of a game like this. Like, we, we, we're in a very, very expensive hobby, and the components are absolutely lovely, both in terms of the artistic direction, with the exception of the map, I don't really like how the map looks, and the quality of the components. And except for the trays being a little more cumbersome than they need to be, it's all very functional. You pointed out the, the sculpted plastic cities that hold the bonus tiles and fen mountain and nice display. That's great. Everything is very lovely, and I love the little plastic trains. And it is, despite the fact that I make fun of it all the time, I do kind of like seeing, ah, there's Darius Carell. He's not a fighter now. He's doing something else with his life. They're awfully stylish engineers. <laughs> that is true. But at the end of the day, this is a very expensive product. Not only is it a massive box full of stuff, the expansion is very expensive. Now, part of that is because they made the base game chock full of value. Like, you know where your money went. I'm not saying, like, you, you know... Like some hard to find imports, you pay a couple hundred bucks and like, well, this is just a whole bunch of chits, like a splatter game, like some, some Philistines complain about splatter games. But this is a very, 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 very expensive value proposition. This is definitely in the like almost at Cthulhu Wars level expense in terms of, well, there are all, there are other games that kind of sort of in this vaguely same wheelhouse. Is this the one you really want? I'm very happy to have it. I'm very pleased to have been able to experience it. But it was pretty expensive to get there. I think it was worth flagging. And I'll play it anytime. I enjoy it. The problems rankle me. I sometimes feel like it was a, it was a game designed to exercise planning capabilities that I don't really have. I wish there had been good player aids. I wish the board looked slightly different. But I really do like what it's done with the, the core run, Rondell formula in terms of getting efficiencies, in terms of planning ahead. I do like being able to cu customize things out with toys. I'm not a huge fan of what happens after the mid-game, but I agree with you. I'd play it whatever it was put in front of my face. It's definitely a game that grew on me. I did not like it at the beginning because it definitely did have that that fighting system feel for me where my opponents were doing these crazy outlandish things and there's nothing I could do about it and I had no idea what they were really doing. It's like, oh, you're jumping over there to do that or, oh, you're doing that and I have no idea why or how. It's And then once you you know start to learn all the abilities and see the cards and know that you have to get into those staff decks early and see what's there, 
then it started to be a very enjoyable game. I definitely enjoyed it more the less I had to resort to looking things up. And again, the first couple times when you play, you haven't really internalized the iconography of the, of the spell cars, the actual cars that you're activating. But they are relatively simple and relatively consistent. Once you start getting into the dozens and dozens and dozens of other Baroque special abilities, I have yet to internalize any kind of iconography there, and I always have to look those up. And I don't think that could ever change unless I started playing it a truly epic number of times. But once I got past that hurdle, I started enjoying the game more, but I also started noticing more and more that after the mid-game, I was less engaged. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. See you soon. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.